Thanks for joining us at Mountainside Anywhere. I'm Pastor Lyle, and we've been praying for you, praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we're here to serve, so please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way that we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage you throughout the week. Join me now as we continue this study in the book of Mark. What a sweet time in worshiping this morning. So we do find ourselves in uh, our continued study in the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 14 today, but we we find ourselves in Mark 14, 15, 16 over these next week leading up to Easter, and uh, it's been called by many the the holy of holies of Scripture. It's the last days of, of Jesus' life. And we're in the middle of that Passion Week is where we find ourselves in our, our study in Mark. But all of history in God's redemptive plan for man is all coming together. It's been woven. That redemptive thread is coming to the point where Jesus, in the climax of the God story, is Jesus dying on a cross on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday, and it's all coming together. These are the last moments, the last days of what God has been doing. As you read the Old Testament, and you start with creation, the fall and the flood, and then constant failure over and over, all because of what happened at the beginning when Scripture says that sin comes onto the scene, And death because of sin, death is passed on all men for all have sinned. All because of sin, we see this perpetuated failure that throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, we see division, destruction, decay leading to death. The nation of Israel is God's chosen nation as the nation that would reveal him to the world. Ultimately, through Israel comes the person of Jesus And as we got to the end of the Old Testament, God is even silent. Like the worst thing that could possibly happen after all of this mess that man has made in Old Testament. Throughout all ages and all the history of man, it's just a mess. And then God is silent, but the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene. Through the nation Israel, through that lineage, through the throne of David, we see back at Christmas, we spend that time in those passages And we see the absolute perfect birth of the perfect man with the perfect people at the perfect time. God's redemptive thread is now born. John 3.16 says, God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus brings an eternal answer to what was Man trying to figure out this temporary answer, this temporary problem on earth, but there isn't a temporary answer found in man. The eternal answer that man needs comes through eternal God, through the Son, through Jesus. You see, Israel knew the law and lambs. That was temporary. But Jesus shows up and brings love and is also a lamb, but an eternal lamb. He is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, not temporarily, but for eternity. That's how we can spend eternity with him is because of an eternal God who sacrifices himself. The blood is shed. We just sang about it in multiple songs. It's through him that the sacrifice is made, that God accepts as eternal sacrifice. Takes sinful man, it covers sinful man with the, the, the covering, the payment, the atonement, the 
redemption that comes that's provided for sinners. So chapter 14, 15, and 16 of Mark keeps this focus on the death and resurrection of Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me, but it's the long-awaited glorious atonement and sacrifice, the ransom, the redemption that's provided for sinners through the person of Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father except through Jesus. This amazing story and the tapestry of all that must have to happen in order for this perfect moment in time, much like the birth, all the, all the prophecies that were told that were perfect in his birth are now perfect even in his death. There's so many characters. We meet some more of them today, but we know that there's these plotting, evil, wicked, religious leaders but then there's also the followers and all the things that happen with the followers over the next few weeks as they unfold through Scripture. But the main character is Jesus. And the invisible character that's behind the scenes is God himself. Today, we're at the beginning of chapter 14. And we haven't seen it in a while, but we come to a place at the beginning of chapter 14 where we've got another Mark sandwich, Okay. Not pastrami on rye, no, but a Mark sandwich, nonetheless. See, Mark, a lot of times in the way that he writes, he'll sandwich some one thing between two things. And we see that at the very beginning. Uh, there's, at the beginning of Mark through the first 11 verses is two verses enemy, seven verses friend, two verses enemy again. Or you could say that it's the wicked with a worshiper in the middle and the wicked again. Um, one commentator organized it like this. I think this is a good way for, for maybe you to see it and understand it. But the first two verses, the top of the sandwich, so to speak, is the decision of the rulers to kill Christ. We'll talk about that today at the top of this sandwich today, that the enemies are there. They're the wicked. They are the decision is made in this uh, couple verses that the rulers will kill Christ. Right in the middle of the sandwich is the worshiper, the friend. It's the devotion of Mary to anoint Christ. And that's where we're going to end today, but next week we're going to pick up in the bottom of that sandwich, so to speak, and it's the determination of Judas to betray Christ. That's the sandwich that we see, evil with a friend, a worshiper in the middle. So today we cover the first two, and we start in the very first verse of chapter 14. <clears throat> it was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. So at the very beginning there, in first verse, the first half of the first verse said, uh, it's now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. So we're a couple days before Passover. Jesus is killed on Passover on Friday. We're a couple days before that, but it's also that festival that continues, the festival of unleavened bread. This, this, the festivities are eight days long. Passover is one day followed by seven days. And so there's an eight-day celebration that's going on in the city of Jerusalem. The leading priests, the second half of verse 1, and the teachers of religious law were still looking, still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus, it says, secretly and kill him. Now, uh, you may be looking at different versions, and they kind of have the order a little bit different, but the word that's in there, the secret word, is that they want to, in a stealth way, capture. Okay, now when you hear stealth, capture, and kill, does that sound more like a movie that you've watched, right? Like there's some covert operation 
going on here to, in a stealth way, capture and kill Jesus. They've tried to get Jesus many times, but it wasn't his time. He's in control of the timetable, not them, even though uh, throughout the next chapters, we see that there's this continual like push and pull uh, that Satan even gets in the middle of trying to get some way to control or to change God's timetable. But he is the one in the invisible background who is the sovereign over the timetable. His timing is perfect. But at this moment, there's agents all over the city. They're looking for Jesus at the end of him uh, causing the huge uproar in the temple just a couple days ago. At the end of that, there's this conversation where the leadership says to all of the agents kind of of the temple, they send them out all over the city. They're supposed to report back and say this is where Jesus is so that they could go and seize him to kill him. You can kind of picture that scene, right? Where it's like somebody's like checking in, like he hasn't left the city to go to Bethany yet. He's not at the gate. He's not at the temple. He's like, there, there's, there's this constant communication happening. I know they didn't have comms back then that they were actually talking like secret agent men, but now parallel passages are important as we look at these and we learn from some of the parallel passages. Today, I'm going to refer a couple times to John chapter 12, the parallel passage about this it gives us a little insight because you see in this uh, and in the end of, or in verse 2, it says, quote, but not during the Passover celebration. They wanted to capture him. They wanted to kill him. But, quote, not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. This is a quote. We get a little more insight from John chapter 12. There's this conversation of the Sanhedrin that's happening with Caiaphas leading the conversation. So high priest is gathered all of the, the leading priests the Pharisees, the scribes, all of the leadership are all there hanging out in the courtyard at the palace of Caiaphas, okay? High priest has got a palace. Isn't that amazing, okay? So palace, they're having this conversation. And Caiaphas, every time we have this interaction and we see Caiaphas, it's almost like you can picture him like um, almost like foaming at the mouth, like I got to get rid of Jesus somehow. Like we have got to destroy Jesus. He's the one who... Uh, specifically said, you must kill him and save the nation. I mean, he's, he's got to destroy him. They're, they're all in fear, but I think the leaders especially, their fear of losing their position, their fear of losing their power, and even their property, because they think that if a riot happens, if something turns itself upside down in this, the way that they've tried to keep control of their people, that if it gets all turned upside down because of Jesus, that the Romans will just come in and take over. I mean, they could be thinking in their mind, like, if we go backwards here, then it's going to be like we're going to be in our own country under slavery of Rome, even worse than it is now. And by their estimation, Jesus is the, the kind of catalyst to that. So they have to do something about Jesus. And the one time that they do not absolutely want him to be captured is during Passover celebration. So an eight-day window. Because it's Passover today, but the extra activities, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's an eight-day window where there are estimated hundreds of thousands up to, you know, estimates of on the day of Passover, maybe well over a million or two million people within the city. So of all the time, it cannot be that time. And the very time that they don't want is God's time. They're like, absolutely not on Friday afternoon. But God's goal is that Jesus would die as the sacrificial lamb, 
John chapter 1, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He will die on Friday. Luke's account says it's dark from 12 to 3, and then he dies. They don't break his legs. We'll, we'll cover that in a couple weeks from now. All that happens in that final moment. But Friday, on the Passover, exactly at the time when the lambs, the, the temporary lamb covering is being sacrificed, they're being slain just shortly, a short distance from where Golgotha is on Friday, Passover afternoon. He will die when the lambs begin to be slaughtered, 3 o'clock Friday, as the true Passover lamb. God's time. While all the wickedness of the world is swirling to make it the wicked time, the evil time, not God's time, God's time is the perfect time and is exactly what happens. They can't thwart God's plan, which is ultimately God's provision for you and for me. My question is, do we trust him? Do we trust his timing, his plan, and his path to provision? Because to me, this is one other instance in Scripture where we see God's plan, God's path, God's plan uh, uh, that leads to provision is in God's perfect hands and God's perfect control under his sovereignty. It speaks to a perfect faithfulness of God, zero failure. While everything is trying to thwart that, he's perfect. His plan is perfect. His timing's perfect. The provision's perfect. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? These details that surround all that has to take place and all that's against him is, is like almost beyond us, beyond our thinking, beyond our comprehension. All that's going on in the unseen. And next week, we're going to continue to talk about that. Do we trust him? We move on from the first part of the sandwich where we see the evil leadership trying to secretly, stealthily capture him and the purpose is to kill him. But it now moves on in Mark to the next seven verses. How cool that he gives two verses to the wicked, two verses to the wicked at the end, but seven verses in the middle to the worshiper. So in verse three, meanwhile... Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. Again, looking to uh, the parallel passage in John gives us a little bit more insight. Okay, so it says there that it's six days before Passover that this event takes place. So this is out of chronological context, but is in perfect context of the preparation towards the death, burial, and resurrection. It's why it's sitting in this spot in Mark. Okay, but chronologically, this moment happened last Saturday when he's in Bethany, and he's at Simon the leper's house. Now, in the New Testament, we see nine different Simons. So even if you're starting to think about, is this the same situation of Simon that we see that there's another woman who comes and, and washes Jesus' feet, different situation, different Simon, different house, different woman. Okay, but he is at having dinner at Simon's house. This Simon used to be a leper. He must have been healed by Jesus along the way um, because no one else is running around healing lepers. So he must have had an interaction with Jesus at some point, and now they're having a dinner together. <clears throat> we know from Scripture that uh, there's more than just Simon's family, whoever's in his family there, but that we know that this is Mary who ends up anointing him in a moment 
So Mary's there, Martha's there, Lazarus is there, the disciples are there. So there's somewhere between maybe 17, 20 plus people that are all having dinner together at Simon the leper's house. It says in verse 3, while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. So these 17 to 20 plus people are sitting there eating. How do they eat? They come in and there's a table much different than how we all come in and, and we you know, sit at our table. This is very different. You picture like the Seder dinner. Uh, if you've seen the picture of the men that are sitting in the upper room having their Passover meal, they're going to sit and they're going to kind of lounge. Like they have these meals for hours and hours and there's lots of conversation. And it tends to be very opposite of our culture, our, our culture today where, you know, it's kind of in and out like fast food's the way to go. But even when you have a family dinner, if it's not Thanksgiving, it's usually pretty fast. This is like going to go on for a while. So they get comfortable. They're, they're laying down with the table in front of them, a very low table, right? And they're laying down. And so now part of this is that we know that when they do this, we, we go into people's houses and we, we keep our shoes on a lot of times, but then there's some that take their shoes off. You know, if you come into our house, it's like, yeah, you can do either. But some people that would take their shoes off, they probably have socks on. But in this case, they're all laying around with naked feet, right? They've got their feet in each other's space, and it's very different than what we're used to. We stick our feet under the table where you can't see them, you can't smell them. But in this case, they're all laying in. Everybody's kind of in each other's space, right? That's the scene of all of them laying, having this dinner together. And this woman, according to John 12, Mary, from Mary and Martha and Lazarus' family, she comes in with this beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume. Now, the alabaster jar would be a jar that would be a marble jar created specifically for this kind of thing where it's going to hold an ointment, a perfume, and it's going to, it's going to hold it and then have a, a skinny neck on top with some sort of lid so that they don't spill it when it's not needing to be used. You know, it reminds me a little bit of like olive oil where, you know, you only need a little bit at a time for the most part, especially if it's from Saratoga Olive Corp Company because it costs like $1,000, but you only need a little bit, Right. Now, they didn't have deodorant back then, so this is not an out-of-the-ordinary thing for them to use something that would make things smell a little better, and you could anoint someone or use a little bit in order to make yourself smell better, especially if you're going to sit around so closely related to each other at this table. That part's not odd. It's not out-of-the-ordinary or out-of-the-custom. The essence of nard is something that we may not be familiar with, but it's from a plant that comes from India. It's, it's used today and still expensive. But what happens next is the thing that's out of the ordinary. It's out of the, the custom of the norm, significantly out of the norm. She breaks open the jar. So it's not that I'm just going to use some. When she breaks it, <clears throat> she's ultimately revealing, I don't want any of it back. She breaks the bottle in order to use all of it on Jesus, and she pours it on his head. The parallel passages reveal that it wasn't just his head. She also washed his feet with her hair with the perfume. She's anointing him. She's worshiping him. She's giving to him. When we see this picture, 
before going on to the rest of the passage, we see an act of giving, an act of worship. When I think about our giving and our worship, there's a couple words that, that to me she speaks to in the way that she goes about how she gives and how she worships. And to me, there's two things. The first one is the word preserve. When we preserve something, it's that we're, we're trying to hold on to stuff, to preserve, hold on to it, save it. Okay, the second word that I thought about was reserve. That's more like holding on to self when I'm reserved, right? Preserve and reserve. And what we see from Mary in her breaking of the jar and pouring it all out is that there was no preservation in her giving and there was no reservation in her worshiping. No preservation and no reservation in an act that is ultimately a picture of worship, but there's a giving component. When we give, the things that we're steward of, all of those areas of our life, time, talent, treasure, testimony, those, those areas that kind of break down the, 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 the significant components of our life, every one of those God's asking us to be steward of and to give to him sacrificially, to give of our time. To give, we're going to talk even a little bit more about that in a second, but in Mary's life here, there's no preservation and no reservation in the way that she worships. But you say, is this really that big of a deal? What we're seeing her do, she breaks a bottle of perfume and she uses it all at one time. It might seem even a little odd, like this is totally like one of those biblical stories because I can't think of any time that something like this would ever happen in our culture or our time, like this would just be really, really odd. Well, it was odd then too. This is, you know, like just watching a, a, a Chosen episode, like you've, you, this really happened where she breaks this and just pours it all over Jesus. Is it really that big of a deal? The parallel passages give us inclination that this is about a year's wage worth of value poured out. So for all of you that are here and that you have regular income, you have a yearly income, what's your yearly income? Just think about that. <clears throat> whatever your yearly income is, would you take whatever that amount is and walk up and just give it to Jesus? No preservation, no reservation, just it's all yours, Jesus. Now you say, like, that varies all over the, the you know, we had a lot of teenagers here last night in Saturday service, so they've got to, they may bring in a couple thousand dollars for them. And that's a, that's a big deal for a teenager. All right, but then some that are working and have retired even, like you're thinking a yearly wage could be six figures potentially. So let's just say that it's $30,000 for sake of argument, that someone walked up to Jesus and poured out $30,000 in a moment without a thought, no preservation, no reservation, $30,000 of value just poured out all over Jesus. <clears throat> Is this significant? Would that be significant for you? Because whatever we know or don't know about Mary, I think this is significant. It's a significant gift. It's significant worship. And it was so significant in the presentation of all this perfume that it's in everybody's face. Like scripture says, it, the whole house was filled with a fragrance. So this act of worship is in everybody's face. They can't escape it. They can't get away from it. 
So they're all faced with how do we respond to this moment of massive worship and giving that we have to do something with? What does Scripture say their response is? Verse 4, some of those at the table were indignant. Quote, why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. Now, it says some. Parallel passage reveals that this conversation was started by Judas. Judas is the one who says, why waste? This is waste, this is waste, this is waste. Judas starts it, but we don't know all of who gets on board with Judas, but he starts the conversation that leads to some of them all saying the same thing. This is wasteful. Yep, this is wasteful. Now, whoever's in this group, interesting that they don't, they just, it's just a group of them. Could have been all of the disciples. I, I don't know. But them declaring that this is waste means that they are belittling Mary. But more even important than Mary, they're belittling Jesus, are they not? So in the act of worship, there's the worshiper and the worshipped. And if you're saying that's a waste worshiper, then aren't you by fact then declaring that the one who is worshipped is not worthy of worship? So when you belittle Mary, you're belittling Jesus. You're ultimately saying to Mary, you're a fool, and Jesus, you're not worth it. You're not worth it. What a waste, Mary. What a waste. You're not worth it, Jesus. And it's not just Judas who's on this bandwagon. Some of the disciples are all with him on this. You're not worth it, Jesus. This waste versus worship argument still happens. Even this morning, I'm sure across America, probably millions of people struggled with, am I wasting my time going to worship the Lord this morning? And how many people maybe... Um, we're giving a hard time to other people, whether in their family or friends or whatever, you're wasting your time. How many missionaries are on the field today and they've been told you're wasting your your life? Now, this is um, something that I've never even catch wind of this in our own family, in our own congregation, but this week I saw someone who graduated from Bible school that I've known for a long, long time. Their, Their Facebook post was, um, kind of throwing shade on a worship event where there's a picture of people worshiping and they just were kind of scrutinizing and calling out the fact that those people that they saw couldn't possibly all be true worshipers. What? Mary, you're a fool for worshiping this way, for giving this way. And Jesus, you're not worth it. The waste versus worship argument today asks us to question in our life, again, like if we think about our time, our talent, our treasure, our testimony, those areas of our life that we give and worship to him, the question is, is he worth it? Is he worth it? Judas says, well, this would be better spent on the poor than Jesus. 
Now, other scripture reveals that he had alternative motives, right? It says that he had already had his hand for a while in the money box, which he was like the treasurer, right? And he's already been skimming off the top for a long time. And so he wanted that 30K to hit the box so that he could take from it. It'd be better spent on the poor, but his intention wasn't to use it on the poor. In verse 5, it says, it could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. But the poor wasn't the issue. Judas was starting that so that he ultimately could get it for himself. So they scolded her harshly. They scold her harshly. They're critically angry with Mary. Two times in Scripture we see Mary. Amazing. She's sitting at Jesus' feet and somebody is scolding her. Think about that. Luke 7, she's sitting at Jesus' feet. She's listening. Here comes Martha. You need to come help me. What are you doing just sitting around? Right? And Jesus says what? She's chosen what's better, Martha. She's listening. She's learning. She's worshiping at Jesus' feet there. And then here, she's at Jesus' feet giving, worshiping, without reservation, without preservation. And here, a group of men that should be the the people in the world more than anybody else that should know better are scolding her for her worship. Sorry, I said Luke 10 earlier, or Luke 7. Luke 10 is where the account of Mary and Martha takes place. You know, in our lives, there's always critical people. People who scold us, who, who may even uh, in, our, in our own family say, you're, you're waste, it's not worship, it's waste, critical of this, that, and the other in our lives. Critical people can be extremely draining. And when critical people start speaking into your life, uh, it's very tempting in that moment to let people get big and God to get small. It's a great book, by the way, when people are big and God is small. It speaks a lot to the fear of man. Man becomes bigger than God is. When Today, when I look at this, it reminds me that the person of Christ must always be bigger than the people who criticize. I don't live my life for people. I live my life for him, in worship of him, to give to him. Nothing, no, no preservation, no reservation. God, my life is for you. And forgive me when I allow people to become bigger and their criticism to to get me down and to drain me and to disappoint me and to discourage me. God, I live for you. You are the one that I'm here to please. You're the one that I need to listen to. You're the one who should be filling me. Even in my weakness, your strength is made perfect. So in this draining moment of critical, criticizing, difficult people, God, you are bigger than all of it. And you're more important. What you say matters more than they say. What does Jesus say in response to this? This is awesome, church. Verse 6, Jesus replies, leave her alone. Now, normally when I'm reading this section, I've always just read verse 6 as it continues. Jesus replies, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? And, And I haven't paused on this little statement. This little statement is, for all the English people in the room, an aorist imperative. Aorist imperative means that in this moment, Jesus, by saying, leave her alone, is demanding immediate compliance. This is like when I was little and I was up to no good. And my dad walks into the room and sees what I'm doing, and he says, Lyle, stop that now. 
And in that moment, just like this moment, I think when Jesus speaks, the air goes out of the room, not the smell, but the air is sucked out of the room. There's probably some gulping happening. Dry throat, swallowing. Jesus speaks up for her. And it reminds me of another situation where someone is worshiping him without reservation or preservation. Stephen, on the day that he's martyred, in Acts chapter 7, it's my brain went to Acts chapter 7 earlier, at Stephen's death, two times it says in that account that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, waiting to welcome faithful Stephen who's just given his life in worship. No reservation, no preservation. Jesus speaks up for Mary. Jesus stands up for Stephen. And in your life, he will do the same. When you are a worshiper of his, without reservation, without preservation, I worship you, God. People are not bigger. bigger. You are bigger. What you say matters. I'm going to give my life, all of it, for you. It's good, church. He stands up. For the worshiper. He speaks up for the worshiper. It continues in verse 6. He says, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? That word good is more regularly transferred, re- uh, translated referring more to something that's beautiful. It's outwardly beautiful. I think that in, in the, the account of Mary and Martha, he says Mary's chosen the, the better thing. And here he says she's chosen the beautiful thing. It's beautiful. There's such beauty to what she's doing in her worship of me. It's excellent, surpassing, precious, commendable, admirable, but it's beautiful. This beautiful thing in verse 7, you, here's the key here, you will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. We tend to read that and people end up dealing with the poor part, struggling with, is Jesus saying that the poor aren't important? No, if you do this for the least of these, you've done this unto me. The issue in this context is about you will always have versus you will not always have me. Who's the preeminent, most priority person in the room all the time, for all time of eternity, past, present, and future? It is Jesus. It's God himself. So in the context, the most important person always in the case of worshiping is Jesus. The issue doesn't have to do with the poor. He's quoting in a way from back in Deuteronomy that the poor will always be available to help. They'll always be the least of these. Yes, they are important, but are they they more important than worshiping Jesus himself? No. No. On the screen, it will show the picture of this. Worship of the Lord is always greater than working with the least. It sounds weird to kind of say there's a lesser value of the least, but in comparison to the Lord of the universe, the creator God, of course there has to be an order there. The worship of the Lord will always be greater. But interesting, worshiping the Lord as priority in our lives will ultimately increase our love, our care, our concern, our meeting the needs of the least of these. Worshiping the Lord will always grow that. When I love God more, think of the greatest commandments. Love God, then love others. If I love God properly, I will love others properly. 
Verse 8, she has done what she could, connected to, conjunction with, and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. She's done what she could and anointed my body for burial ahead of time. Picture with me. This is complete fabrication, okay? Mary's walking in her house. And she's going along and she's coming down the hall and she looks up and she sees the sign that she got at Hobby Lobby that says, live, laugh, love, right? Most of you have it in your house. So Mary sees the sign and she reads it and she stops and she's smiling. And then she's kind of overwhelmed with emotion. She starts to weep as she hears her brother Lazarus speaking in the other room, who's alive. For the last few weeks, unique to anybody else in the world, her family understands resurrection on a level that no one has ever experienced it before in their lives. Lazarus is alive. After this in Scripture, we see that they have a plan. Those evil people, the enemies of God, have a plan to kill him too because he's drawing too much attention to Jesus. Lazarus is alive. Her brother's alive. I believe, and some may not agree with me, but I, le- I believe that she has the very unique perspective here. I think she no doubt has heard Jesus in all the conversations that he's now speaking regularly with his followers, with his disciples. It's not always just the core 12. It's with all who are listening at the time that he's teaching and speaking that he is going to go to Jerusalem. He is going to face death, but he will rise on the third day. I think Mary is listening. She is attentive. She's proven that she's someone who wants to worship and listen to Jesus. And I think she uniquely has no doubt as she's heard Jesus Her love has discerned what the disciples at this moment cannot see. Throughout Mark, we see the blindness, the shroud of understanding still over the disciples, even all the way to the point of after Jesus ascends. That's when clarity finally comes. But for Mary, I think she could already see what they could not see, that there's a deeper understanding of his references to his coming death and resurrection, more than probably any of his other followers outside of her brother, and her sister. Now, I don't think it means that she uh, understood the significances of, of his death clearly, but she began to understand something of the mystery of the Messiah must die. And it says here, it says that she's done what she could, and that, that translates, that connects to what she did do. She's done what she could by anointing, has anointed my body for burial. What could she not do? She couldn't stop him from dying. Peter says, no way, Lord, right? There's no way I'm going to let you die. Get behind me, Satan, right? God's timing, God's plan. Mary, I think, understands that there has to be a death and a resurrection. She she understands it and does what she can by anointing him. She's not going to try to talk him out of it. She's not going to try to speak to it. She is just going to say, God, I understand that this is what you're saying is going to happen, and I'm going to choose to anoint you for your burial ahead of time. She gave all that she could in that moment for the, the, the doing what she could only do, which was to prepare him, to anoint him in her worship of him. Sometimes I think we get overwhelmed in our worship of God. We get so moved at times with all the needs, all the things that are happening that we know about. But church, we can't do everything. 
but we all can do something. We can't do everything, but we can do something. And this was the something that Mary could do as she loved Jesus. Her love was overflowing. What can I do to show him, to, to worship him in this moment? And so she breaks the jars and she gives all that she could give in that moment, which is a perfect picture of the pouring out, the breaking and the pouring out and the giving all that she could do. Jesus reciprocates that by being broken and spilled out for all of us on the cross. Verse 9 says, I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the whole world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed, just like we did this morning. We can't all do everything, but what would God say would be the, you've done what you could in your life, in your story? Has God been moving in your heart to, to, to do more, to do something different, to Start being regular attenders to church, to serve in church, or to give, or uh, to, to speak more boldly when given an opportunity to talk about Jesus with friends or family. Has he been putting something on your heart that in my love of him, in my worship of him, I've been preserved and I've been reserved, holding on to stuff or holding on to self, and I need in my worship of him to have no reservation and no preservation. God, I love you so much that I want to worship you with abandon. And let the naysayers nay, the critics critique. God, you're bigger than all of them. You're more important than anything in my life. I'm going to do whatever I can, whatever you call me to. It's not going to be everything. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And what is the Lord saying your something is in your worship of him today? 